Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. Believe it or not, we've come to the end of this long series. Uh, we are in part seven of seven parts. And as always, I like to mention that there are a variety of ways to follow us in these Bible studies. Uh, we know that not everybody can physically log on at 7.30 on Wednesdays, although we encourage that if you can. But all of the studies are recorded, and the audio recordings are placed at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. Um, you can also subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast, and if you know how to do that, I would strongly recommend that because you automatically get each new uh, recording as well as the notes are sent directly to your phone or other device. So it's nice to have all of that uh, automatically coming to you. Otherwise, you can go to the website and download the notes and catch up on any of the recordings that you may have missed. Uh, we are planning on completing this series tonight. And I can't wait to begin the next one, which is a study on the book of Acts. And we're going to dive right in next week without any delay. And hopefully we'll have the notes uh, uploaded to the website in the next day or so, so you can download those ahead of time and have them in hand for us to start next Wednesday. Um, I hope you've been excited, like I have, about this theme that we've been looking at, the glory of God. And just to recap a few things before we complete this study, the scripture that really kind of sparked my interest in really digging deeper into this theme was a very simple verse that most of you probably memorized when you first became a Christian, it's Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as many times as I've used that scripture in witnessing or teaching or preaching, honestly, I never gave a whole lot of thought until recent months on the very last words in that scripture, the glory of God. But I began to look at many, many other scripture passages, and I realized Paul wasn't just throwing the glory of God in there to make it sound cool. This was the centerpiece of his whole gospel message. Adam sinned and brought sin and death upon the whole human race. As a result of his sin, there were consequences. Death was one of them. Uh, many other consequences that we won't go into tonight, but one of the s severe consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, their fall, was falling short of the glory of God. And we developed that at some length, that in the beginning, God made man in his own image and likeness, unlike any other creature in his creation, Man shared something of God in his life, his very image, his likeness. And I think we can show that 
part of that was the glory that God gave to man. And as long as that image of God was preserved in him, he shone with the very glory of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from God, the image became marred, and he fell short. The word sin, we looked at, means to miss the mark. It's like you're shooting at a target, and if you don't hit the bullseye, you sin. You missed the mark. And so, the falling short of the glory of God is just another way of expressing that. The bullseye for you and for me is not just to avoid going to hell. It's not just to start going to church or reading our Bible a little bit or pray. The, the bullseye is God's glory. God wants to show us his glory. He wants us to partake in his glory. And ultimately, our calling, and we use that phrase in a, in a variety of ways, you may be called to a certain ministry, maybe you're called to be a prophet or called to be an evangelist or called to be a Sunday school teacher. We use calling in that context. But ultimately, we saw that God has called us, all of us, to his eternal glory. We're called to glory. And as we entitled this whole series from Moses' prayer in Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory. Show us your glory. Moses had seen quite a bit, but obviously there was still something more that he longed for, he hungered and thirsted after. And so it should be with you and me. Regardless of the experiences we've had up until now, there should be something in us that longs for more of God's glory. And again, just to recap, it's hard to give a simple definition for the glory of God, because it basically encompasses all who he is. The glory of God is the radiance of his very nature. And so you can make a long list. It's his power, his wisdom, his faithfulness, his grace, his truth. You make that whole list of attributes that make up the, the divine nature. Well, the shining forth of that divinity is what we call glory. And we looked at numerous examples, both in the Old Testament and the New. Glory is something visible. It's something tangible. It's something very real. And whenever the glory of God appeared to the people, they, they were immediately aware of it. It wasn't some imaginary thing in their heads. This was very real light and heat and power being manifested, radiating out from the very essence of who God is. And so, Jesus came to not only reveal the glory of God, the Word of God became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. John, the writer of that Gospel, he was particularly attracted to the glory that 
was being manifested through the person of Jesus Christ. And on one occasion, with the disciple Thomas, Thomas said, we want to see the Father. Jesus said, you're looking at him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not to say that the Son and the Father are one and the same, but I'm reflecting the Father. So, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was a perfect reflector of the light, love, glory, truth, power of God here on earth. And then later, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, the God of this age, the devil, is working overtime to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see. Well, what is it that he doesn't want them to see? He explains very carefully there, he doesn't want them to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is shining through the face of Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel of glory, or the glorious gospel. So, the, the devil doesn't mind people becoming religious. He doesn't even care if they go to church once in a while and carry around a big heavy Bible. What he doesn't want them to do is to see the light of the gospel and really receive a revelation of the good news. The good news is that not only have our sins been paid for and there's full and free forgiveness for everything that we ever did in our past, but it goes way beyond that. God wants to transform us from a sinner into a saint. And he changes us from glory to glory into the very image and likeness of his Son. There it is again, likeness and glory. He's restoring us to that glorious image, the likeness of his own Son. And this is the real hope of a Christian. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, if in this life only we are hoping in Christ, we're still of all men most miserable. Why? We miss the mark. We've missed the bullseye. Because it's not just what Jesus can do for you and for me in this life. Praise God, he helps us in this life. He heals us of sickness. He gives us peace of mind. Sometimes he'll answer uh, prayers and give you a new job or uh, all kinds of changes he brings into our earthly life. But Paul says if you stop there, and that's the limit, the boundary of your hope in Christ, you missed it. Because the real hope is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope of glory, glory in heaven, glory in eternity, eternal glory. So, with all of that that we've now looked at, we come to one final and very important section, which I've kept rather short. It, it could go on and on and on, but I think you get the idea from this short section that remains. If you are trying to follow me in the notes, we're on page 52, Roman numeral 4, Practical Ways 
to glorify God. And we want to begin tonight with a scripture that I would like to challenge you with as it has been challenging me. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we mentioned last time, um, if, if you understand how electricity works, it, it needs to be in a completed circuit. If you break the circuit, then the electricity stops flowing. And there's something of a circuit that God wants to complete between heaven and earth, between himself and each one of us. And that is, from him, through him, and to him. So, God gives us his love, his grace, his glory, and all of that comes through Jesus Christ, but it's still an incomplete or a short circuit unless we give the glory back to God. And we looked at one very tragic instance where Herod, he gave a speech and everybody was praising him and saying, wow, he gave a speech like a god. And the Bible is very specific. He didn't give the glory back to God and he died right there on the spot and was eaten of worms. So that's an example of what not to do. So it, if we want to keep this electric current, if you will, flowing from heaven into our life, we need to learn how to keep giving glory back to God. Live for the glory of God. Learn how to glorify God and keep giving Him glory back. And I gave you a number of doxologies in the notes, and we went through these last time. This is taken from the Greek word for glory, doxa. These are short little prayers or expressions of praise and giving glory back to God. Many of them end with, to God be glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And they will help you to take what God has given you and done in your life and give glory back to God because he's worthy, he's deserving of all of that glory. But let's come back to this scripture for a minute. I would challenge you to really use this from day to day and ask yourself, am I really doing this? And how do I do this? Whether you eat, do it for the glory of God. Whether you drink, do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So apparently, what Paul is trying to say here, it's not so much what you're doing, it's how you're doing it. You might be sitting at a computer, typing letters, you might be up on a crane, painting a bridge, it, it really doesn't matter what you're doing, he says, when you're doing it, do it for the glory of God. 
And I'm convinced it really doesn't matter so much what we're doing as the attitude and the spirit with which it's being done. You can have two people doing the exact same job. One is grumbling and complaining, oh, why do I have to do this? I hate this job. I don't like what I'm doing. And miserable and grumbling and complaining all day long. The other one's doing the exact same job, just humming and singing and praising the Lord. And maybe, I don't mean to pick on any particular profession, but let's pick one that might not sound very uh, enticing or popular. Suppose you're a garbage collector. Not a real glamorous job in most people's minds, but supposing that garbage collector is out there, hallelujah, Jesus, I'm doing this for you. These people are, are going to be blessed today when their trash is picked up and their front yard is nice and clean. I'm going to do this for the glory of God. And you've probably met people like that who are doing jobs that, quite frankly, aren't you know real glamorous. They're not doctors or lawyers or politicians, not that that's necessarily a very good profession anymore. But um, I've seen bus drivers that uh, are just doing it with all their heart, and they're glorifying God with what they're doing. So whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, Try this this week at your job or around the house or whatever you're doing when you're washing dishes, when you're picking up all the toys that the kids uh, have strewn all over the living room. Do it for the glory of God. And I think you'll begin to uh, feel some conviction if you're doing it and grumbling, you're doing it complaining, you're doing it with a bad attitude, that can't possibly be glorifying God. So this verse actually helps us to fine-tune our attitude and make sure whatever we're doing, we're doing it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, giving Him glory in all things. Another scripture that we've looked at previously in Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's actually... Um, another doxology. This is one of these, to him be glory forever and ever. But this one's very specific. To him be glory in the church. So, narrowing this down a little bit for a moment, the church, whatever is done in the church, whatever your calling, whatever your ministry, whatever your place in the church is, it should be bringing glory to God. And again, you don't have to be a preacher or a teacher or some mighty miracle worker or healer. Um, teach Sunday school so that it gives glory to God. Vacuum the 
church sanctuary after the meeting and be glorifying God. Say, Lord, I'm doing this with all my heart for you because I want you to be pleased. I want you to be glorified. I had an experience years ago with a young man who was staying with Pastor Tom and me at the time we lived in that Arlington faith house, we call it. And he would eventually become a full-time minister. Um, he had just come and started to stay with us, and he was very grateful that we were putting a roof over his head. And one day he asked me, you know, brother, what can I do? Can I help around the house? What, what would you like me to do? I said, well, if you want to clean that back porch, you know, here's a broom, and, you know, just sweep it up a little bit. And I came back there about an hour and a half later, and he was still working. Man, he was sweeping out every particle of dust, every cobweb. He had that porch shining, and I said, brother, you don't, you know, you don't need to do it that well. I mean, I just wanted you to kind of give it a a quick cleaning, you know. And he looked at me with fire in his eyes, and he says, no, 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 brother, I'm doing this for Jesus. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I I felt so convicted. I'm like, oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah, do it. Do it for Jesus. So it's not what we do. It's how we do it. And you can sweep a floor for the glory of God. You can drive a car and pick up people for the Sunday service and Either, again, do it grumbling and complaining, why do I have to do this? I should be up behind the pulpit preaching. Or, hallelujah, I get to drive the saints of God. What a privilege carrying this precious cargo in my vehicle. Now, practically speaking, there are a number of different specific activities mentioned in Scripture which you would probably think of when we talk about ways of giving glory to God. Things like singing, dancing, clapping, shouting, praising, giving thanks, worshiping. All of those things are a part of our giving glory to God, not just in church, but especially when we come together as a church, but uh, I didn't even begin to list scriptures here, because there would be hundreds of them just from the book of Psalms alone, where it talks about praising God, worshiping God, singing unto God, exalting Him. And many of the scriptures talk about doing it with heart, with emotion, with tears, with laughter, with rejoicing, with weeping, with mourning. The whole range of emotion is involved in the Bible when it comes to different ways of worshiping and glorifying God. So it's not just being happy and jumping around and rejoicing because you feel good. Even weeping before God, mourning, in his presence, is a way of worshiping God. And the important point, again, is do it with your whole heart. Scripture we often point out in our Sunday gathering, 
let's be careful not to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus quoted it. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We want to engage our heart, our lips, our hands, our feet, every part of our being, so that we connect with God when we're worshiping Him and giving Him glory. The Bible talks about doing it with all your strength. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sometimes we've been in the presence of God jumping and dancing until we're absolutely exhausted. Well, King David did that. He danced before the Lord with all of his might. You look at these um, Olympians, if you've been able to catch any of the Olympics, these swimmers and runners and gymnasts, they don't give 50%. They, they pour it all out. And I mean, when they cross the finish line, they don't have anything left. They've given it their all. We should praise God, worship God the same way. The Bible mentions specifically doing it with our lips, with our mouths, with our voices, things like shouting, crying. And I know some of you are shy and you don't like to be very loud, but sometimes it says make a joyful noise. Shout out loud to the Lord. Praise Him with a, with a loud voice. The scriptures often engage our hands, clapping our hands to the Lord, lifting our hands to the Lord. I've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. This is one of my pet peeves. It drives me up a wall. When we're singing a song, Oh, clap your hands to the Lord. Isn't He good? Praise the Lord. And our hands are in our pockets. Get your hands out. Clap them. It's not that hard. We sing songs, Oh, I lift my hands to you, O oh God. And our hands are down at our sides. No. Engage your body. Lift up your hands. Clap your hands. Lift up your voice. Use your lips. Use your mouth. Use your voice to glorify God. Put your whole emotion, your whole being into it. Many of the scriptures in the Psalms, and this is interesting. I was challenged on this a while back by a pastor. You'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere in the scriptures where it specifically tells you, close your eyes when you're going to pray. I'm being quiet for a moment, just so you have a chance to process that. We were probably all raised being told, close your eyes before you pray. But Jesus and many others in the Bible, they opened their eyes. They looked up to heaven while they prayed. So sometimes it's good to lift up your eyes along with your hands as you're praying. And I know Pastor Quasey has mentioned how he likes to look out the window up at the sky when he's praying. That's good. Jesus looked up to the sky when he said, My Father, our Father, who art in heaven. It helps us to remember, wow, this is a vast universe, and heaven is up there. That's where my Father is seated 
on his throne. So, with hands lifted, with eyes lifted, sometimes we use our knees. We literally kneel down. Sometimes you fall down, prostrate on the ground. These are all um, exemplified in the scriptures for us. I'm not pulling out all the references, but you can look them up for yourselves. Kneeling before the Lord, falling down before the Lord, bowing down before Him. And of course, I already mentioned this one, dancing, jumping, leaping. Let me tell you something. If you were that lame man we're going to be studying about soon in the book of Acts, that was sitting at the gate beautiful, 40 years he had been unable to walk. And in one instant, Peter said, get up and walk. His ankles were strengthened, and he was completely healed. You remember what he did? He went with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. You better believe after 40 years of being crippled and sitting there on the ground begging for something, now that this man has full use of his legs, what is he going to do? Jump and leap for the Lord. If you have a couple of good feet and strong legs, use them sometimes to jump for the Lord. Jump for joy. And here again, you know, you look at these sports games, maybe you've been to a baseball or basketball or a football game. Look at what the fans do. They go crazy. They're jumping up and down, clapping, cheering. Most of them don't have any voice left when they leave the stadium. They've worn themselves out, getting up and down out of their seats, shouting and hollering, lifting their hands in the air, not to God, but for their favorite sports fan. How much more? Our Sunday services should put the stadiums to shame. Come excited about the Lord, shouting and lifting your hands. Your feet start to move a little bit. You feel like dancing, jumping. We've had times in our services where the Spirit of God falls on us, and we just take off running. We run around the building. We take off and run around outside sometimes. You just... You feel such a, an energy and such a, an exhilaration in the presence of God. You want to do something physical before the Lord. Many of these things that are listed here, singing, praising, giving thanks, worshiping, they're all uh, activities that involve our spirit, our soul, and our body. So don't think you can just stand there like a statue and say, oh, well, I'm praising God in my heart. Yeah, that's good. But use your body too. Use your hands, use your eyes, use your feet, use your legs. Use every part of your being so that you can love the Lord with all your strength. Now, a couple of other specifics. Um, and I hate to keep saying this, but this is not a complete list. I just threw a few things in here. Your list is 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. These are just a few practical ways that are commonly mentioned in the scriptures that enable us to give glory to God. This one I put in here because you might not often think about it, but when we declare 
and confess God's word. It's called professing or confessing our faith. We're doing that to the glory of God. Basically what we're saying is, God, I affirm that your word is true. And regardless of how I feel, regardless of what the situation looks like right now, I'm going to go on declaring, professing, and affirming your word so that it brings you glory. Look at these two scriptures. Hebrews 10.23, I took this one out of the King James, let us hold fast the profession, or confession, some Bibles say, the profession of our faith, without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So, a couple of key words here. Profession of faith, he is faithful, and he promised. So, because the faithful God has promised certain things, we start professing, confessing that faith. Here again, it requires the use of your mouth. It's out loud, confessing out loud the word of God. I believe, therefore I speak, Paul said. And the next verse makes it even clearer. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Amen or Amen simply means so be it. It's, it's another way of saying, I agree with what was just said or what was just prayed. When you pray a prayer and you finish it with Amen, you're basically saying, yeah, it's going to be. Whatever I just asked for is coming. It's on the way. It'll come to pass. And specifically here, Paul is again referring to the promises that God has made. Faithful God has made many promises, and all of those promises are yes in Christ. He's not, he's not a maybe God. He's not yes sometimes and no sometimes. If God makes a promise, he means it. He intends to back it up and fulfill it. And so Christ says yes to every promise. And knowing that, Paul says, so through Christ, you now respond back to God with amen. The amen is spoken by us, not by Jesus. We're the ones that are saying amen to the promise. Why? To the glory of God. So, let's look at the flip side of this. When God gives a promise, and we get all discouraged, and we say, ah, oh, this isn't going to work for me. God never answers my prayers. This, this isn't going to happen. I don't know, maybe... Maybe it doesn't mean what it said, or, I don't know, maybe God changed his mind. Sometimes he's yes, sometimes he's no. That doesn't glorify God. Being firm in our profession of faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, hold fast the profession of your faith. 
And sometimes, like Abraham, you're staring at death. It says Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Sarah was as good as dead. They knew they were too old to have children. They understood all that. They weren't delusional. They faced the facts. We're too old to have a baby. But, 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 God gave us a promise. And the promise is more powerful than what we're seeing. Therefore, Abraham did not waver in his faith. He didn't fall down in unbelief. He kept giving glory to God, believing that whatever God had promised, he was able also to perform. There's another area, broad area, I just threw down a couple of scriptures here, in which we give glory to God. That's through works, through deeds, through good works, through our fruitfulness, through the things that we do for the Lord and for others. Classic scripture is Matthew 5.16. I'll read it from the New King James Version. <clears throat> Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, when good works are done, both the ones doing the works and the recipients of those good deeds glorify God. Glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2 and verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans. You know, we're living in dark times. It seems like almost everybody around you is a liar, they're corrupt, they're doing something uh, illegal, they're doing something that's not quite right, and the temptation is very great to come down to their level. Jesus warned us that in the last days, because iniquity and wickedness and lawlessness would be increasing, the love of most would grow cold. We have to work against that. And even though we see people around us living like pagans, cheating and lying and doing all kinds of corrupt things, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. It may not happen right away. It may be in the future. But one day they're going to glorify God for the good works that they've seen in your lives. Basically, Peter says, don't worry about them. Just keep doing good things. Live good lives. Do good works. And whether they want to admit it or not, they're noticing you. They're seeing the good deeds. And often, it's bringing conviction into their hearts. And that's why they lash out at us in persecution. Because it's bringing conviction upon them.
Philippians 1, 9-11. Paul writes, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I don't think it's hard to understand this, but I'm going to say it anyway. When you and I are producing fruit of righteousness, we're, we're bringing forth godly fruit in our lives. That certainly is giving glory and praise to God. We're for the praise of the glory of His grace. So as that grace is working out in our lives and we're expressing it by fruits of righteousness, it's returning glory back to God. Again, look at the flip side. If we're not producing any fruit, if there's no no sign of righteousness or godliness in our lives, then how can that possibly be giving glory and praise to God? So it's when we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that glory and praise are returned to the Lord. Jesus made it even clearer when he was talking to his disciples in the famous uh, chapter 15 of John where he talks about the vine and producing fruit and all that. He says in verse 8, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This scripture is very powerful, and it's one that I often use in my own personal prayers with the Lord. And it goes something like this, Lord, you told your disciples that it would bring glory to your Father when we bear much fruit. So obviously, if we're bearing little fruit, that's not going to bring you a lot of glory. So help us to bear much fruit in our Christian lives so that it brings maximum glory to the Father. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. So again, agreeing with God, we begin to pray, say, Lord, make your church, make your people extremely fruitful so that we can give glory back to you for barrenness and and spiritual sterility are not going to give you glory. Much fruit does. So make each and every one of us fruitful in the knowledge of God. One final specific way that I did list here, because it's mentioned specifically in a couple of places in Scripture, and we don't like to talk about this too much or think about it, but the Bible also says that we glorify God through our death. Yeah, that's right. 
the way in which we die can bring glory to God. Look in John 21, verses 18 and 19. Jesus has already risen from the dead here. He's with Peter and the other disciples there on the sea, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he says in verse 18, talking to Peter, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would die? No. The kind of death by which Peter would suffer? No. The kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Glorify God. So, even the way in which we die can glorify God. This is certainly true of martyrs, Christians who literally give their lives for Christ. They're given the opportunity to recant and deny Christ and they remain firm and off with the head. That glorifies God. It's sad, it's gruesome, we don't like to see it or hear about it. Nevertheless, every time a martyr sheds his blood and gives his life for the faith, it brings great glory to the Lord. Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, whether we're living or whether we're about to die, Paul's decision was, I want it all to give glory to God. I want Christ to be exalted in my body, whether it's through life or through death. And over the years in my own experience, some of the people that have most impacted my life were Christians who were dying. They knew they were dying. They were in the final stages of life about to depart and be with the Lord. And their courage, their boldness in the faith, their love for God, and their continual joy, even though you knew they were suffering pain in their bodies, it brought great glory to God. And it, it served as a powerful witness to people around them. So, whether you eat or drink, live or die, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All right, one last little section I put in here. Again, this could be greatly expanded, but I wanted to keep it short. Just a quick summary 
of some of the ways that we've looked at in the course of this study that can hinder the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I am very serious now about this. I want God's glory to be manifested in the church. I want God's glory to be seen in my life. And if there are things getting in the way, I want to address them. If there's something hindering the glory of God in the church, we need to get after it. If there's something hindering the glory of God in your personal life or my personal life, let's get after it. But here's a summary of some of the things that we've looked at that can definitely get in the way. And remember, Adam and Eve had the glory of God. They lost it. They fell from it because of sin. So certainly, sin is the number one enemy of God's glory. But more specifically, point A in our list, pride. Seeking glory for ourselves. Oh, that's a big one. That's a big one. That can really hinder the glory of God from being manifested. And this is going to be a continual effort in each and every one of our lives. We don't whip pride once and for all. That's why the Bible says, humble yourselves. How often? All the time. Just keep humbling yourself. Keep humbling yourself. Keep humbling yourself. Because self always wants to resurrect itself. It wants to ascend back onto the throne. Hey, look at me. Look at how smart I am. Look at how powerful I am. Look at how talented I am. No, humble yourself. We want to see the glory of God. We don't want to seek glory for ourselves. And the story I mentioned a little earlier of Herod giving his big speech and everybody's clapping and applauding, and he took the glory for himself. That should be a real sober warning to us. And the Bible says that we are tested, not just when people are spitting on us and mocking us and persecuting us. Actually, a more difficult test, the Bible says, is when you're being praised, when you're being honored. Why? Because that feeds into pride and self. Be very, very careful when people are clapping and cheering and patting you on the back and say, Oh, brother, that was a fantastic speech. Or, sister, you sang like an angel in church today. Okay, fine. You don't have to make a big scene out of it, but just be very careful in your heart of hearts. God, that was you. I give you all the glory. I don't take any of that from myself. And just deflect, reflect all of that glory and praise right back to the Lord. Otherwise, it'll corrupt you. And not to get too far afield, although it is pertinent here, if you study, a lot of people ask, where did the devil come from? Why did God create the devil? Well, he didn't specifically create the devil, he created a glorious angel named Lucifer. And Lucifer was corrupted 
because of his beauty. And what corrupted him was pride. And he began to change from giving glory and honor to God to saying, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend to the very throne. I'm as good as God. And that's why he was cast down. Pride, self-seeking the glory for myself, wanting the chief seat, uh, wanting to, you know, be acknowledged as somebody great. All that has to be uh, laid at the foot of the cross if we want to keep seeing the glory of God. Second one is related to that, and it, it again, it has to do with human nature and our tendency to idolize anything. God created us to worship, and we like to make gods out of things and people. It's called idolatry. And basically, uh, what will very quickly shut down the manifestation of God's glory is when we begin to honor anyone or anything above the Lord, putting other gods before Him. And that can be anything. And this is related to the first point, because I may be making a god out of myself. The, the, the idol I'm bowing before, the idol I'm exalting, is me, my own will, my own gifts, my own talents. It's idolatry. We need to lay down any idolatry. Have no other gods before me, the Lord says. Third in the list, this is also important, a lack of reverence and holy fear of God. In other words, we just we become kind of casual and we no longer fear God in the sense that, you know, in one instant, God can just blow on me and evaporate me. That's the God we serve. He's called a consuming fire. And one of the one of the bad examples we looked at quite extensively in this study was way back when the glory departed from Israel through the sons of Eli. And that whole study, uh, you might want to go back and look over again. That's how not to do it. That's how to lose the glory of God. That's literally... <coughs> It ended up in a child being born named Ichabod, Ichabod. Remember, Kabod is the Hebrew word for glory. Ichabod means the glory left, the glory departed. Well, why did it depart? Look at what the sons of Eli were doing. They had no fear of God. They were just living for themselves. They were committing sexual sins with the women right there in the temple. They were breaking the law, just feeding themselves, uh, having a good time. No fear of the consequences of what they were doing. So having a healthy reverence for God, a holy fear of God, 
The God we deal with is a living God. He's a consuming fire. Man, we'll see that when we get into the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira thought they could pull a fast one. They sold some property and kept back part of the money for themselves. They could have kept all the money if they wanted, but they were being hypocrites. And they dropped dead in the church. And the Bible says great fear seized the whole church. I would think so. When people start dropping dead because they're lying and they're hypocrites, that's going to bring some holy fear into the church. The fourth thing we've listed here, this is a whole big laundry list, the leaven of selfishness, disobedience, unconfessed sin. Again, remember the sons of Eli, all the stuff they were doing, disobedient, just sin upon sin, no repentance, no wanting to put their lives right. Uh, just going deeper and deeper into their own life of self-indulgence. Um, fifth in the list is an important one. John said, the word of God became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The reason Christ reflected God's glory so perfectly is because of those two things. He was full of grace, but also full of truth. That's a nice balance, grace and truth. A lot of people go to one extreme or the other. Oh, it's all about grace, brother. He'll forgive anything I do. I can go out tonight and, and commit adultery and have an affair, get drunk, um, you know, indulge myself, and then tomorrow I can repent and come back to church and there's an abundance of grace for me. Paul says, God forbid. That's not a proper understanding of grace because you're leaving out the other half of the equation, truth grace and truth. The truth of God's word begins to tell us, no, 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 that's wrong. That's not how you live anymore. You need to stop doing those things, and here's how you need to live. Others go too far to the opposite extreme. They're all about truth, 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 and no grace. And they go around beating people over the heads. Oh, you can't do that or you're going to go to hell. You better stop doing that. God's going to smite you dead. Well, yes, what you're saying is correct. The behavior may be wrong. There may be scriptures to back that up. But God is also a God of grace. Jesus had both, full of grace and full of truth. And I think in our churches... We need to constantly strive for that balance between grace and truth. Not just a little grace, not just a little truth. Full of grace, full of truth. Then we can expect the manifestation of God's glory.
And last in the list, and again, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think you get the idea. Jesus told Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus had died, if you would only believe, you would see the glory of God. So I take that and I flip it around. What does unbelief do? Unbelief kills the glory of God. And we talked about confessing our faith, the profession of our faith, saying amen to the promises of God and giving glory back to God. Faith glorifies God. Unbelief can really hinder the glory of God. And as a church family or a church congregation uh, gets older with time, they've they've been around for a while, there's a tendency to become more and more mechanical, more and more self-righteous, and we're no longer really exercising faith. We think, well, we're pretty good people now because we've been Christians for 45 years. Well, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 150 years. You're saved by grace through faith. So we need to keep that faith activated, that faith energized. That's the only reason you and I are saved. It's faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Okay, let's tie this whole thing up and bring it to a close now. We saw that the whole earth is full of the glory of God. The heavens, the stars, the planets are declaring His glory. The flowers, the mountains, the birds, the trees, everything that God made is declaring His glory. Wherever God is, whatever He has made, whatever He does, there will be glory. Glory is the evidence that God has been there. And God has been everywhere, so the whole universe is full of His glory. But, as we mentioned, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. started with Adam and Eve, and Paul goes further into that in Romans 5, explaining how through one man, sin and death, passed upon the whole human race, and even corrupted the whole creation. Through one man's sin, he missed the mark. Ever since then, we've all been sinners, missing the mark, falling short of the glory of God. But the great good news of the gospel is, God sent his Son to bring redemption from all of that. To forgive our sins, but to go beyond that and redeem us, and restore us from that fallen state to the very glory of God. He does it through the gospel of the glory of Christ. And if I can just leave each one of us with one main thought from this whole study, keep remembering that the bullseye is the glory of God. Whatever we do, in church, out of church, in your own personal life, the the mark, the goal, the bullseye is the glory of God. 
Make sure you and I are continually aiming for that, <clears throat> nothing else and nothing less. That's God's purpose through the gospel, is to restore us to that glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, God is now shining into the darkened hearts of sinners to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Note that word knowledge there, light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He wants to teach us about his glory. He wants us to have knowledge of the glory of God, not just head knowledge, real experience of knowing the glory of God, and the best place to see the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Study the life of Christ. Look at all the scriptures that talk about Christ, who he is, what he did, who we are in him, and it will enhance and enlarge your revelation of the glory of God. And he goes on to say, because of this gospel of glory, God has given us his Holy Spirit, and because of the Holy Spirit, he's transforming us from glory to glory, or NIV says, with ever-increasing glory, I like that, ever-increasing glory, until finally and ultimately we are found in the very image and likeness of his radiant Son. Lord, show us your glory. Lord, give us your glory. And Lord, to you be all the glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Before we close, uh, in the notes, and there's a, there's a long list that I gave you here in the appendix. It's actually A to Z, so I'm not going to read through them but hopefully you have the notes. Um, these are all things mentioned in Scripture that are glorious. Every one of these, if you look up the references, and references are given for each one of these, every one of them is glorious. God's glorious voice, God's glorious law, God's glorious grace, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, the glorious church, everything in this list is said to be glorious in Scripture. Because these, again, they're all aspects of who God is and what God does. So it stands to reason, for instance, point number A, God's presence is glorious. God's glorious presence. He's coming for a glorious church, and he's entrusted us with the glorious gospel. Let's close together in prayer tonight, and want to thank you for being with us all of these weeks that we've been going through this one. This will conclude, uh, show us your glory, and we will be moving right into our new study next week, the Book of Acts. If you can, get to our website download the notes, uh, which should be up there in the next day or so, so that you're ready to go uh, next week with the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the God of glory. And, oh, Lord, you made man in your own image and likeness, and you gave him uh, 
your very glory, your glorious image. But Father, because of sin and rebellion and selfishness, we fell away from that glory. And in your great love, you sent your own Son, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, full of glory, to bear our sins, to take the penalty of death, to conquer sin and death, to die a horrible death on the cross, be buried, and to rise on the third day in power and victory, and then to ascend back to glory at your right hand, pouring out the Holy Spirit and giving us the great good news, the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you. We pray that in these days to come, we would fix our eyes on the mark, on the goal, on the prize, on the bullseye. It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for every promise that you've given to us about the glory you want to give us, the glory you want to show us, the glory that you're calling us to. And to all of those promises that are yes in Christ, we say amen to the glory of God. And now, Father, bless each and every one that has been a part of this Bible study. Give them your glory as you promised. Show us your glory as you so desire. And God, to you be all the glory through Jesus, your Son, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.